I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Alex Drillen, who is an associate attending physician and the clinical director of the Early Drug Development Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He's been at the forefront of development of many novel targeted therapies for some of our newest biomarker-driven therapies for advanced non-small cell over the last few years for targets like uh, RET, MET, TREK, and some others. And uh, it's a an interesting challenge. So, Alex, there aren't many lung cancer specialists who are so known for studying relatively rare subgroups. And I imagine it, it has its unique challenges, uh, though with some great rewards. Let's start with just a discussion of the, the challenge of NGS testing. Obviously, uh, to quote the seminal book, The House of God on medicine, you won't find a fever if you don't take a temperature. And molecular testing patterns are quite variable these days. Uh, how much of a challenge do you see it as for targets like these one or two percent ones that are still emerging and are not clearly a standard of care in terms of finding these and doing the research you're trying to do? Well, I think one of the biggest hurdles has been the perception of what an NGS test is. And clearly there's a lot of heterogeneity in the different tests that are available, both commercially and at academic centers. What you really want is a test that's able to reliably pick up not just your standard mutations, but things like fusions or rearrangements, and also copy number changes. And sometimes when a doctor looks at what an NGS test might offer, it might have an appropriate list of genes for which mutations could be detected. So it might list ALK or ROS1 or RET, for example, but that platform may not be poised to look for a fusion, which you're really interested in as the biomarker of targeted therapy. So for me, that's the first challenge, getting the word out there on what are the most effective tests at picking up these alterations and having docs sort of take a deeper dive and looking at the sensitivity of these assays and the fidelity for picking up these drivers. But this also speaks to the variability in what people think of when they're talking about NGS. I, I really don't think it's uniform at all. And I think one of the challenges is that if it's debatable even among the people who spend a lot of time thinking about this and lung cancer specialists, general oncologists must be bewildered and totally befuddled about this and not know what they're not looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's common for someone to get a report from a commercial NGS assay that might spit out nine or 10 different things. And the issue with some of these companies is that when they annotate these reports, that several of the potential passenger alterations are cited as potentially matched with a drug or a clinical trial with no clear prioritization of what you might go for and what you might ignore. And that's, I think, the second major challenge there, getting these diagnostic companies to really sort things out for the physician, because they obviously have more of the time to look at what might be 
um, a, a verifiable driver in tumor versus something that may not really play a role in oncogenesis. And laying that out clearly so that patients don't get um, transitioned or matched to the wrong agent, which we've seen happen in select situations. Yeah, I would imagine this is something that when we think about all the promise of personalized medicine, one of the potential challenges, and I see it in curbside consults or second opinions, is sometimes patients are put on a personalized molecular therapy that is very weak on evidence or, or just a, not a good concept. It's, it's, uh, and, and it has supplanted a standard therapy that we have good data for, uh, but people may not have a good enough understanding about what is an appropriate level of evidence to support uh, or what is a clinically significant biomarker these days uh, versus uh, still very good standards of care, even if they're not personalized for every patient. Absolutely, it's a huge problem. And thankfully, there are organizations that are looking to really categorize these NGS um, reports, or excuse me, these mutations, fusions, et cetera, by the level of actionability. One thing that we focused on at our center is a, a website called OncoKB, where you're able to type in the mutation, and it tells you if it has good clinical evidence or just preclinical evidence, and really helps sort out you know, how strong the data is behind giving a target therapeutic. ESMO also has had a focus on trying to classify these alterations. Um, but really, we need to see that cross over into these reports that physicians receive, because I think at the end of the day, trying to translate what you're seeing on a report, plug it into a website, is still a whole lot of time that people don't have. Do you have many patients getting referred to you for a RET trial or a MET trial, particularly something like MET, where uh, you know what is considered as actionable for MET in terms of amplification versus exon 14 skip mutation. I mean, there, there's still some controversy about this. So are you seeing patients referred to you who end up being turned away as not being appropriate or are they screened in advance? Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe to take an example of an FDA approved drug, recently larotrectinib, a TRAC inhibitor, was approved for TRAC fusion positive cancers. And I've gotten several referrals or inquiries for patients who have track mutations and not track fusions. So it really underscores the need to educate on a molecular level um, physicians and other care providers about what these drivers really are and what the actionable versus the non-actionable events are. Do you get any sense of uh, resistance to broader testing that do people ever say it's one or two percent, uh, it's not worth it? Or is there, in your sense, a general consensus building that this is the future, that NGS is now or soon becoming enough of a standard of care that you could just send for the panel and, and, and the frequencies don't matter? Because it, it is obviously challenging to look for multiple very narrow subsets unless you're doing a very broad, casting a very wide net. I think it's a little bit of both depending on who you talk to. Yeah. And people who have seen a lot of the data, you know, people at academic centers, for example, I think it's more of the latter. There is a growing consensus that you need 
one big test to capture all of these alterations, even though it might be a 0.2% event, which is what we're seeing for tract fusions in right. lung cancer. Um, but then there are people who maybe see one ALK fusion a year, never seen a ROS1 fusion, never seen a MET-X114 alteration, who think, well, I don't know if these really exist. Is it worth testing for these uh, drivers? So again, this goes back to education and the fact that even though these events might be rare, that when you find it for a patient, you know, it can be sort of a jackpot because you have a new therapy with really meaningful clinical benefit that we're able to achieve. Several years ago, Dr. Ross Kamage uh, from the University of Colorado and I wrote a commentary uh, piece called Half Mutation Will Travel in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology about how the earliest trials of crizotinib motivated patients with an ALK rearrangement to travel great distances to participate in those trials that were you know, specifically for their well-defined molecular subgroup. The anticipated benefits, or at least the promise of that, uh, in these trials were so fundamentally different from your usual trials of chemotherapy plus or minus novel drug X that uh, you know that are looking for just a six or eight week benefit that it seemed to justify getting on a plane. What are what are you seeing? Uh, you're running trials uh, at a, you know a renowned cancer center, and these trials are not available anywhere else. So are patients coming from huge distances to participate? I think we're actually seeing much more of that now. That's true for some of our drugs that target ROS1, where the benefits are high, uh, RET and TRAC. And I think the additional layer that we've seen is that the drug companies that sponsor these trials have been keen to actually provide funding for travel and lodging. Um, and in the earlier stages of these trials where there were fewer sites, definitely these sites served as sort of catch all areas for people who live you know, within several um, uh, hundred miles. Um, and I think that's been a huge benefit to patients to have that resource. Um, and their patients, you know, I think maybe the most extreme examples are, I have a lady with a track fusion, positive lung cancer, um, who flies to me from Brazil every month um, covered by the trial, um, and uh, I've treated her since 2015. There's another gentleman who flies to me from China once every month to get his supply. Um, and I think, yeah, it's not only good for people within the United States, but also for the international community to have access to these trials. Absolutely. So does this mean that uh, you don't have that barrier of, of distance for patients uh, because of the, the funding or, uh, or is that still a challenge for practically getting patients to Memorial or the few other centers participate? I think it's much less of a challenge now. And honestly, I have been in situations where I have a trial with a good drug that doesn't have the funding. And I've had patients who have said, I think it's worth it, to, you know, sponsor the travel, um, even of the caregiver uh, to come see us for therapy. So. Things are improving, it certainly isn't perfect, but I do think that we're in a better place now than we were before. Let's talk about patient online groups because one thing that I've seen with the rise of patients online is that these groups seem to self-aggregate with the strength that's related to the infrequency of the, of the, of the molecular alteration so that 
know, the, the Ross 1 group is especially tight, ALK 2, but, you know, you don't really see cohesive groups of small cell or squamous. It's not that exclusive of a club. Uh, and one of the issues, I think, is that these groups really band together in a setting where you're more likely to know more than your treating physician, which is not that much of an issue for the more common cancers, but many or most oncologists have had so few ROS1 patients or TRIC patients, even ALK, that, uh, that a lot of times they're going to need to whisper in the ears of their, their physician what they have learned is the greatest new thing. Has this emerged yet for these incipient standards like RET and MET and, and, uh, and TREC uh, yet? Is, are these online groups and are, are they influencing research? Are they facilitating research by getting everyone online to come and participate in these trials? So we're actually seeing this emerge now. Um, there is a group called, I believe it's the RET Rangers, um, that's on Facebook and is, like you said, similar to Janet Freeman Daly's group for Ross One, the Ross, the Ross Wonders, Wonders yeah. EGFR resistors, sort of trying to follow the same paradigm. Um, and you're right that these patients, you know, potentially know much more than their physicians given the discussions online and actually are much more keen about certain side effects that they might experience that are rare that the treating physician may not have noticed, but that other patients at other centers have experienced. So I think it's obviously phenomenal that this is happening and that it's happening on the patient level. The reason I think we're not seeing it in the squamous cell lung cancer population or the small cell population is probably the rewards have not been as great. Um, but for something like RET, where you're seeing 70, 80% response rate, very durable disease control, intracranial disease control, um, I think that it's only natural that we're seeing the emergence of new groups like this. And it's interesting that uh, I think these online groups are settings where the patients will often know more about the side effects, because even if you're a physician on the trials, participating in the trials, you only see the handful of patients at your center, but they're talking potentially with patients from many centers. And it's it's been interesting over the years because we certainly are good at detecting lab-based abnormalities uh, or things that patients go to the emergency room for. If you coughing up blood, we know that. But for musculoskeletal aches and minor nosebleeds or you know, runny nose, eye irritation. These are the kinds of things that people don't rush to the ER for, but sometimes you learn about these things just from the experience of what is kind of a subclinical but chronic issue. And I, I would imagine that these online groups do a very good job of figuring out that you know, everyone's got this these arthralgias or runny nose or something like that that aren't prohibitive, but they're worth knowing about as an attribution. Right, and I think that I, from some of my patients, I've heard the best descriptions of these side effects um, that have been posted on the Facebook group. So for some of the track inhibitors, for example, patients can experience issues with proprioception. It's really hard to sort of quantify that, but the stories I've heard are a guy who can't really golf as well anymore because every time he swings his club, he gets busy and disoriented or this lady who used to work in the garden a lot, but whenever she turned her head to 
um, sort of pick up a weed in the garden, she also got dizzy. So um, I think that it's been extremely useful to have this connection um, between uh, patients at your center and patients who have been treated at other facilities. How do you see it as being feasible for general oncologists to to practice lung cancer that is becoming increasingly defined by molecular oncology. I mean, when, when, when I started in this field and before you did, it was just chemo doublet for everybody. And for about 10 years, you didn't have to read JCO and you'd still be pretty much up to date. But uh, nowadays, it's become extremely complex. The algorithms have splintered and, and your work is really you know, really refining it to a very high level. So is it possible to still do thoracic oncology as a general oncologist? And if so, you know, how do you do that? I think it definitely is possible. It needs to start in my mind with getting the education in the medical schools and having sort of more of a focus on molecular medicine, target therapies, but also bringing education to people who are past med school and who are practicing oncologists. And then going back to what you said about algorithms, I think the onus is on us, people who work as part of the societies um, and cooperative groups to come up with very clear guidelines and simple guidelines that direct providers to the appropriate therapies for their patients. Um, and I think that with those, those two pieces, um, it'll become much more easier. I, I definitely think it's feasible. I don't think it's something that's unattainable in this day and age. At Memorial, you were, have been one of the centers that has been leading the charge on artificial intelligence, Watson for Oncology. I would envision that if this can be executed, it would be a great setting to, to help whisper in the ear of physicians in practice that, oh, for, for this particular mutation, I, you know, this just got, we just got the NGS report and it can interrogate OncoKB and, and, other, uh, and, and other databases in a way that a human brain can't. Uh, is this a setting where you think that's a realistic promise? Because honestly, uh, Watson for Oncology has had some pretty mixed reports in terms of how useful it really is. Well, I think this might be more of an opportunity actually for AI and machine learning because as we alluded to, a lot of these are clearly annotated online. And for some drivers like met exon 14 alterations that are very heterogeneous, it's not like your EGFR, L858R, or exon 19 deletion. You can have up to hundreds of different variants. Something like a like a Watson equivalent, maybe even on your phone, where you could plug in the variant and it would tell you if it's been associated with oncogenesis and response to therapy, that would be very, very useful. And I think we're definitely heading in that direction. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.